this week, as I was in the midst of my sermon preparation, I was so uh, captivated by a quote, I pushed it out on our social media. But for those of you who aren't on social media, it's a bit of a riddle, and so I'll let you try to solve the riddle. Um, And it comes from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes this, he says, There is one vice which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, but of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. He goes on to elaborate, but the answer to the riddle is pride. Lewis talks about how, oh, we, we see it in others, but we just really fail to be able to see it in ourselves. The more we see it in others, we hate it, and yet, for whatever reason, we still just struggle to see it in our own heart. He writes this, he says, uh, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So at first it sounds like a bit of an overstatement, but I don't think it's an overstatement at all. I think Lewis has spent a lot of time thinking on it, and I think he's right. I think at the seed, uh, or the root, you might say, of every of our sins that we, that we struggle with is pride. Where does my anger come from? Well, most of the time, if I'm angry, it's because someone didn't do something how I wanted it to be done, or something was a way that I didn't like, right? So I get angry. Where does greed come from? Well, I want that. Where does lust come from? Same space, I want that person, or I want to feel that way. Where does gossip come from? Well, I want to look good, and I want them to look bad. Where do lies come from? Well, I want to protect myself. Where does all of our sin come from? All of our sin comes from this idea. Okay, there's God's way. I should go God's way. But you know what I'd rather do? I'd rather go my way. So I'm going to go my way rather than God's way. At the root of every one of the sins that you and I struggle with is pride. So hopefully what we see from Daniel chapter 4 this morning has an application to all of us no matter what it is, particular thing you're struggling with today, I bet you if you dig hard enough and deep enough, you might just find a seed of pride that we can all go to the Lord and confess and ask for him to help us overcome it. So we're going to see this from Daniel chapter 4. We've entitled the sermon, Look Up. So let me explain the sermon title. We're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man maybe in the known world whenever Daniel chapter 4 at this time is describing He's at the pinnacle. He's at the top. He looks down on everyone. And what he's going to learn is how to look up. God's going to take him from the pinnacle and take him down to the base. And so let me give you one more C.S. Lewis quote. He says this, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So this, in Daniel chapter 4, is how Nebuchadnezzar learned to look up. You're going to see him go from a superhuman power to a subhuman individual. So let me read for you this story. It is story time at Northgate Church. You could also call it the time for the public reading of scripture. You could also call it the time you need to ready your elbow for that person next to you who's going to doze off in the next three minutes. You give them one of these. All right. 
Daniel chapter 4. It's on the screens, it's in your Bibles, it's on your phones, or you're welcome to listen. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. This is King Nebuchadnezzar making a declaration. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. That's just the opener. Nebuchadnezzar saying, everybody, listen up. I'm going to tell you a story about the Most High God. So here he goes. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, and I was prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians and the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods lives in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretations." The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed, behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, lest the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. So Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may this dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that the top reached in heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and which was food for all under the beasts of the field found shade and which branches of the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, destroy it, Leave the stump of its roots from the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till the seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation. O king, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, 
that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, he was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, as he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me, my counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. But now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble." And so that is the story of how King Nebuchadnezzar learned to look up, how he was brought low so that he could learn to look up and see that there is a king in heaven. And so what we want to do is look at Nebuchadnezzar's experience and learn some lessons from his experience. And the first lesson, really the central lesson of his story, is that we should all humble ourselves before God. That's why the story closes. It's very clear what this story is about. It says in verse 37, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. The point of this story in scripture is to say, humble yourself before God. God can humble you in any number of ways. Here's what's preferable. Trust me, humble yourself before God because God has all kinds of ways to humble you otherwise. So as you walk back through the story that I just read, you see how it's framed up at the beginning and the end. Nebuchadnezzar is praising God. This has changed him. And he tells you how he was changed. He was at the top, right? He was at the premier, the pinnacle of all power, looking down on everyone in the world, perhaps. And I like how it says it in verse 29. When, when it actually happens to him, He is at the top of his palace in verse 29. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, most powerful city in the world, highest point in the city, the top of the palace, and he goes from superhuman to subhuman. 
as God's judgment comes upon him. He is humbled before God. The main lesson of the story is that you and I should humble ourselves before God. Now, here's what happens when we read a story like this, and the application is humility. Here's what is our default mechanism. Praise God. There are some people that I know that need to be humbled. I mean, there are some proud people around me. There's some proud people that keep sending me flyers in the mail. There are some proud people sitting in this room. There are some people that need to be humbled, right? Now, that is, quite frankly, just lazy application of the Bible. It's too easy. And you know what that kind of application does? It actually boosts your pride because you're like, you know what, that person is is uh, more proud than me, and I'm going to apply the sermon to them. Let's not do that. Now, Lewis told us, C.S. Lewis told us at the beginning, pride's really hard to spot in ourselves and real easy to spot in others. So let's just pause for a moment and see if maybe there is a shred of pride even in your heart that you're not seeing. So one of the, the tools that I've used to, that has helped me sort of see this is a great little booklet um, that's the cameramen are like, where do you go? I'm right back. Uh, written by Tim Keller, and it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And in it, he really has helped me see like, oh, wow, there's pride in this heart in all kinds of ways that I didn't see it before. One example would be like, so there are good things in our life that that can not necessarily be motivated by pride, but there's good things in our life that if we dig deep enough, we might just find pride there. So he's got a great little quote in here on page 22 from Madonna. For those of you who are younger in the crowd, Madonna used to be a celebrity. Yeah. Um, some of us remember her. So at a time in her life when she was popular, um, she wrote this. She said, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push that one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But when I feel, but then I feel like I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. And my struggle has never ended and I guess it never will. What I appreciate about Madonna's quote there is she's very self-aware. She's aware that for the rest of her life, she is going to be struggling to prove that she is somebody. And at the root of that is pride, that I have to, in my life, prove that I am somebody to you. If you dig deep enough, there's a seat of pride there. There's a seat of pride around every corner. Um, uh, Keller highlights how, let's talk about criticism. How do you receive criticism? Because some people, when they receive criticism, it just takes the legs out from under them, and they're devastated. Why? Well, because they just can't stand for somebody to not think that they're great. Oh, there's a seat of pride in there. But there's other people, more like me, who can be criticized left and right, and I don't care what you say. <laughs> you can criticize me because I know I'm the best. Um, so I will just ignore your criticism and carry on because I'm awesome, right? Either way you play it, there's pride deep down rooted there, whether criticism bounces off of you or criticism devastates you. Either way, there's a seat of pride that we have, to, we have to be honest about and take it to God and, and confess it to him and ask him to do his work in our heart and in our lives. That pride is in there as much as we see it in others. It's also living in our own heart. Now, what this little booklet is so good at is it's so good at explaining how the antidote to pride is the gospel. It's the gospel. And I don't know if Keller said it first or Lewis said it first or who said it first, but the great quote is, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. 
It's thinking of yourself less. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself like, oh, I really am a horrible person. No, that's not humility. Humility is simply thinking of yourself less. So rather than thinking of yourself, let's do this. Let's look up and let's think about God. And let's think about the fact that God created you and he created you in his image. And so that can give you a sense of identity. Let's look up and be reminded that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you on the cross. God loves you so much that he forgives your sins every single day. You're unfaithful to him and he remains faithful to you. So as we look up, we are, this humility can be produced in our hearts as we realize who God is. See, the beauty of the gospel is, is, is that it's not my good works that get me love and, and grace from God, is it? It's not like I, I create a resume and I pass it into God and say, look at all the good things that I've done. That's not the gospel, because that just produces pride. The gospel is, no, God loves me in spite of myself, not for the good things and not for the bad things. He loves me because he has chosen to love me, doesn't he? And I just receive that. And that's what the gospel does for us. And as we do that, as we look up, here's what we begin to hear. We begin to hear from God this message saying like, I'm so happy you looked up. Now I want you to look around at others because I've called you to love God and I've called you to love others. So now I want you to shift your attention to others. And so once we start getting a handle on our pride, we're looking up, we're hearing from God, then we start looking out at others and we begin to think like, oh, who are the people around me? I'm not obsessed with myself. I'm obsessed with God, and he wants me to be interested in others. And so I don't mean to beat the drum of Lewis this morning, but C.S. Lewis makes a great observation. He says, um, uh, if you want to know who the humblest people around you are, they are the people that are most interested in you. If you were to meet a truly humble person, you wouldn't walk away thinking they were humble. They wouldn't just be telling you about how they're a nobody. Because a person who is, keeps saying that they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. You know who the humble person is? It's that person when you're at that party and it went on for hours and you talk to people and then you're driving home and you're like, but uh, you know what? There was that one person who asked me questions. There was that one person who seemed genuinely interested in who I was. That was a nice moment in the party. That was probably when you brushed shoulders with someone who was working through the power of God at work within them to live in, in humility and resist the pride that plagues us. So we want to see that the gospel is the antidote to the pride. As we say we need to humble ourselves before God, what we're saying is we need to believe the gospel. See, the gospel is our ticket to heaven, but it is so much, infinitely more than that. The gospel is also what transforms our attitudes. It's what transforms our perspectives. It's what transforms us as party guests. It's the gospel that we are oriented towards others so that they can experience the love and attention of God as it flows through us and to them. If we could get this down, then we would just be that special sauce that God has spread out throughout his world that people get a taste of and they want more of. There's something different about that person, and here's what it is. We have learned to humble ourselves before God, look up, and then look out to others around us. And hopefully we can, we can learn that from Nebuchadnezzar. He was humbled, and we should be humbled as well. We all have some room for growth in the area of humility. But let's look at a few more lessons we can learn from Nebuchadnezzar. That's the central one, but let's see some others because there's great moments in this story. So let's just look at the beginning in verses one to three. What is Nebuchadnezzar doing? 
He's making this proclamation to the whole world, as many people as he can gather around. And what's his proclamation? He says, I want to tell you what the Most High God has done for me. I think we can learn from Nebuchadnezzar here is that we should share the good news about what God has done for us. It's the year of mission. That's what we're calling it. And our mission statement as a church is that we want to engage and evangelize the lost, and then we want to establish and equip those who are Christians. You know the scariest word that's of those four E's? It's evangelize. See, that's a scary one. I don't mind engaging lost people. That's just making friends. Establishing and equipping, fine. Those are people that want to be established and equipped. But you know what evangelism is? It's like, ooh, that's scary because I don't know that I want to do that. That seems a bit much. But you know what's interesting is if you take what King Nebuchadnezzar did here in verses 1 to 3, it's evangelism. If you take the word evangelize and you dig deep to its roots, to the seed of that word, what you'll find is in ancient times, whenever a king would stand up and proclaim good news, that's the word. It's a king proclaiming good news. So you know what's interesting? Nebuchadnezzar has probably evangelized before. He's probably come back from conquering Jerusalem, and he stood up, and he made a declaration for all of the people in his kingdom to hear, I've conquered Jerusalem. I've brought back its captors. We are now more powerful than we were before. What's unique about chapter 4 is this is perhaps the first time that Nebuchadnezzar has truly shared genuine good news. And what's the good news he's sharing? Well, there's someone more powerful than me. There is a most high God. And let me tell you what that most high God has done for me. You and I should be doing the same thing. It's simply going out into the world, and as we have opportunities, we should tell people what God has done for us. So what has God done for you? If you're like, I don't know what to say to that. Well, it's okay if you don't know what to say because you're so overwhelmed and you don't know where to start. He's forgiven my sins. He's given me his Holy Spirit to live within me. He's forgiven me. I mean, I am unfaithful to him every day, and he just showers me in his faithfulness to me. He's given me his word. He's given me his church. There are so many things we can say. But what is interesting, Nebuchadnezzar says, well, this is what God's done for me personally. And he tells a personal story about his life Life was changed. He says, I used to be this way, and now I'm this way. And you should have that story as well. It's not proud and arrogant to tell people that. It's actually, if you tell it in a way that gives God the glory, right? To God's glory, I used to be more proud and arrogant than I am today. I used to have to be right. I used to have to convince you that you were wrong and I was right in conversations. And I'd be argumentative and I would would fight for it. But what God has done is he's changed me and he has made me more humble and he has helped me see that, you know what, the most important thing in the world isn't that I'm right. I mean, I really want God to be right. And you should have examples that you can share with other people as well about how God has changed you and how you're a different person today than you were three years ago, five years ago, because God is doing a work in your life. And we should be sharing that like Nebuchadnezzar did. Here's another lesson we can learn from Nebuchadnezzar. We should praise God for what he has done. That's what he does at the conclusion of chapter 4, is he is praising God for what he has done. He says, I bless the Most High, praise and honor to him who lives forever. So when we come out of a storm or we come out of a a desert season, we should be prepared to praise God for what he has done. And man, that is Christian cliche. Praise God. Praise God. We should praise God for what he's done. So let's just pause for a minute and let's just get rid of the Christian cliche and just see what this is. This means that if God makes you insane for seven years, 
And he causes you to be the greatest humiliation to your family. Your children and your wife see you eating grass, behaving like an ox, humiliated, painful insanity for seven years. When you wake up from your insanity and this gross humiliation that you lived for seven years, then you should praise God. So let's not pretend as if it's just like, oh, well, praise God you got through that. No, like, we should probably have a, a healthy degree of patience for our friends and family as they come through a storm. It's really, really hard to praise God sometimes because you're so wounded. And we should have patience with one another because it's not easy to do what Nebuchadnezzar just did. It's actually quite difficult. It reminds me, though, of a, an addict. And that addict needs to detox, doesn't he? So you love your friend who's an addict and and you get them to detox and they go through this suffering of coming off of that drug. But then after they're off the drug, hopefully what they do is they say, oh, I'm so grateful for that suffering. I am so grateful for that pain. Because why? Because it got me off of that drug. And I think there are people and, and ourselves at times who are just addicted to the drug of pride. And sometimes God detoxes us and it's painful and then we look back and we say like oh praise God that he changed me because I didn't want to be that person that I was but he changed me and that's what Nebuchadnezzar teaches us he also teaches us that it's never too late to turn to God it's never too late this we believe I mean the the chronology of, of Daniel is difficult But what we believe is that this came late in Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Daniel's been living in Babylon a long time. And this is shortly right before Nebuchadnezzar does lose his power. And somebody else comes in and conquers King Nebuchadnezzar. But it's never too late to turn to God. doesn't matter what your past is. It's never too late to turn to God. You say, well, well, I don't know. I've done a lot of bad things. Well, here's some of what Nebuchadnezzar did, right? Like he went to God's most holy city and he just laid it in rubble. And then he took God's chosen people and he slaughtered them. And then he took some of them that he liked and brought them back to his palace to be his slaves. So I don't know what you've done and I don't know how long you have been living away from God, but what I'm telling you is what King Nebuchadnezzar shows us is that it is never too late to turn to God. It is never too late. You look at the thief on the cross in his dying breath who was finally able to turn to Jesus and and confess his faith in him. And Jesus says, I will see you in paradise. It is never too late to turn to God. And then finally, what we learn from Nebuchadnezzar's life is that your greatest failure, your greatest humiliation can actually bring God glory. There could have been nothing more humiliating than what we just read about, right? He, he's living like a cow for seven years, probably seven periods of time. Hair grows out, fingernails like claws. Humiliating. This is his greatest failure. This is his greatest humiliation. And yet this is the moment in Nebuchadnezzar's life where God gets all the glory. It reminds me of the story of Charles Coulson. So for those who are older in the crowd, I don't probably need to tell the story, but for those of us who are younger in the crowd, Chuck Colson had great success in life. He was on the fast track to being the most powerful man in America. He was an American attorney, political advisor, special counsel to President Richard Nixon. He was known as President Nixon's hatchet man. And so in the Watergate scandals of Nixon's era, Chuck Colson 
pled guilty. He was one of the Watergate Seven, and his great humiliation was he got sent to prison for seven months. The federal Maxwell Prison in Alabama, the first member of the Nixon administration to be incarcerated for Watergate-related charges. Chuck fell from the heights of power at the White House to the jailhouse. It was his greatest failure. It was his greatest humiliation. Chuck Colson, though, as he was in that process of falling, found Christ. Someone shared the gospel with him, and he went through a radical conversion to Christianity. He wrote books about it. He's written many books. He has since died, but some of his words remain, and he writes this. He says, I realized that it was not my success that God had used to enable me to help people. So what happens is as Chuck Colson is in prison, he begins to look around and see the state of prisons, and then he gets out of prison with this newfound faith, and he starts a ministry that's still thriving today called Prison Fellowship. It's in over 1,000 prisons in America. It reaches over 365,000 incarcerated men and women each year. It has since become Prison Fellowship International with exponentially greater impact around the world. And later in Chuck's life, he says, I realized that it was not my success that God used to enable me to bring help to those in prison. My life of success was not what made this morning so glorious. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure. I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one thing which I could not glory in for his glory. So I don't know who you are, I don't know what your past is. I'm assuming maybe you have a skeleton in your closet. You've got something that you're really humiliated of. You have this just gross failure in your past. And you're ashamed of it. But what Nebuchadnezzar shows us in the story is God can use your greatest humiliation, your greatest failure, to bring him the greatest glory. How does that work? Because if I'm willing to look up, then God is willing and able to redeem all of those failures and, and, and embarrassments of my past. That's what Nebuchadnezzar teaches us, but we have to look up. We have to look up. We have to shift our attention off of ourselves and our humiliation. We have to look up and see that there's a God in heaven who can redeem all things. We just, we don't always look up. I think God's trying to get our attention all the time. Sometimes he troubles our spirits. But you know how else he can get our attention? By turning all the trees around us brilliant colors. By causing the sun to rise and the sun to set, I think every moment of every day is God screaming out to us to get our attention, to look up, to see that there is a most high God, and to align ourselves with King Jesus who rules over everything. And as we do that, that should provoke a level of humility in our hearts and a desire to share his goodness with others, shouldn't it? But if I won't pay attention to the God who changes the colors of the leaves, and if I won't pay attention to his word that I have access to, then you know what? God has other ways of bringing me into humility, doesn't he? I don't think he wants to do that to you, and I don't think he wants to do that to me. But he can. He can detox us from our pride. And if he does, and it is humiliating and difficult and painful, even then... God can use that to bring him glory. That's what Nebuchadnezzar teaches us. I want to take just the last minute and just quickly highlight lessons we can learn from Daniel. 
because I think there's three just really quick important ones. Daniel speaks the truth in love to his authority. In, in verse 19, Daniel says, uh, uh, let me find it here, um, and I'm on the wrong chapter. Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king said, Belshazzar, don't worry, just tell me. And Daniel says, oh, my Lord, the, may the dream be for those who hate you and the interpretation for your enemies. Daniel's saying, oh, I'm troubled in my spirit. I'm dismayed. And, and may this, what I'm about to say, I wish I didn't have to say it. He speaks the truth in love to his authority. We're a lot like Daniel. You and I live in exile. Like our home is the kingdom of heaven. And we live in the kingdom of this world as exiles, just like Daniel did. You know what else is also in common? The people that live, the authorities, and the people that we know in the kingdom of this world, they often don't know what truth is. And you know what? Oftentimes we do know what truth is. And we have the opportunity oftentimes to speak truth to the kingdom of this world that we're exiled to. But do we speak the truth in love like Daniel did? Do we go before our authorities or before our friends with the humility of heart and the love that you can hear from Daniel as he shares this news with the king? Or do we do it in yells or in insults in throwing mud, or smugness, or self-righteousness? Or have we learned to communicate the truth in love? Daniel teaches us that. He also teaches us to speak the truth regardless of the consequences. I think all the other magicians knew the interpretation of this dream. I don't think this one's very hard to interpret. Maybe some of the details are difficult, but this is clearly a dream that his interpretation is, Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to get chopped down, man because you don't know that God is in heaven. I think all the other magicians knew the interpretation. They were just too scared to speak the truth. And so what we can learn from Daniel is let's speak the truth in love regardless of the consequences. And then thirdly, let's call people to turn from sin and start practicing righteousness. When you get to verse 27, that didn't have to happen. Daniel shares the interpretation of the dream. Verse 27 is an add-on. So verse 27, Daniel says, okay, king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. That's Daniel saying, like, please listen. Please listen to this counsel, king. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, and that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So get this. This is a captor. I don't know. This is someone who's in captivity speaking to their captor. This is someone who's ripped from his homeland and is now trapped in the palace of the king. The king who devastated his city probably murdered his friends and family. If there was an enemy that Daniel had, it had to have been King Nebuchadnezzar. And yet as Daniel stands opposite the person who should be his enemy, he has learned to speak the truth in love, and then he has learned to say, you know what? You know what I want more than your destruction? I want you to turn to God. I want you to turn from your sin and I want you to follow the Almighty God so that you could continue to prosper. What? Why would you want King Nebuchadnezzar to continue to prosper? Because Daniel's saying, oh, like, I'm not here to bring down the Babylonian kingdom. I'm here so that people will turn to God and experience salvation. So here's the application for you and I. I don't know who you're planning to vote for in November, but what I'm interested in knowing is who's the person you're not going to vote for? 
It's the person that hell would freeze over before you vote for that person. What if you had opportunity to stand before them and tell them, I have a message from God, and you're politically going to be destroyed? Would you glory in that? Or you then add on and say like, but I don't, I don't want you to be politically destroyed. I actually want you to turn to Jesus and find faith and hope and salvation in the Most High God. So which would you do? And you know the answer I'm hunting for. And if you're truly more interested in your political adversary's destruction, like how would I know that? How would I know that your heart is really most fundamentally for the salvation of your opponent and not for the destruction of your opponent? How would I ever know that? Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so as we begin to have conversations with one another as November approaches, what I'm curious about is where our heart is. Because you know where our heart should be that Daniel shows us? It should be for the salvation of the opponent so that as our opponent might experience the salvation of Jesus Christ and be transformed. That should be our heart's desire. So that's just a word of, of warning, a, a lesson we could learn from Daniel is if we have opportunities, oh, our hearts should break and yearn for our adversaries to come to Christ and then let their reign continue if they're following Christ in righteousness, having turned from their sin. So Daniel teaches us some important lessons. Nebuchadnezzar teaches us some important lessons. I don't know what you needed to hear this morning, whether it was a lesson on humility. I certainly think we all needed that. Maybe you needed to hear that you need to be bold to share what God has done. Maybe you needed to hear that you need to praise God for what he's done, even if it was difficult. Maybe you needed to hear that, that, that it's not too late for you personally to turn to God. Or maybe you needed to hear an encouragement to speak up in love and call people to repentance. Whatever it is you needed to hear this morning, we trust that you heard it from the word of God as it was read. There's something for each of us, but we can't apply any of it to us in our own strength. Because here's what happens. If I leave here today and I'm like, I'm going to be more humble this week than you are. Oh, there's pride again. We can't do any of it in our own strength, can we? As I go out from here today, and if, I, and if I in some way bless you, or if in some way I'm able to exercise humility and reduce this pride that's in my heart, it's not because of anything I did. It's because God's spirit was at work in me and through me. And so I give all the glory to God that whatever humility I can exercise this week was only through the power of God that was at work in me as I trust in the gospel and I live this week in the power of the gospel.